You'll find our scripture reading this morning on page 11 of your worship folder. And we are in the midst of a series called Something Beautiful for God, A Christian Vision of Human Sexuality. And this morning, our scripture reading comes from Genesis 20 through verse, chapter 3, verse 11. So hear God's word to us this morning. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs of, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the, then the man said, This at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Will you not surely die? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from his presence, the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? The word of the Lord. Oh, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you meet us in your spirit and our hearts. May our hearts be open and vulnerable to you this morning. May we not hide ourselves among the trees or seek to cover ourselves or to shield ourselves from your awesome presence, but help us to know that you You're the God who comes to us in the garden, the God who desires relationship, the God that is always moving towards us and not away from us, no matter where we find ourselves. You're the God who covers our shame, the God who seeks intimacy with us. And so this morning, may we know your intimacy and your closeness and your presence to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the British drama Downton Abbey, in the last season, it sort of starts in season five, but sort of concludes, there's, uh, the last season is a season of romance as everybody's sort of getting together. And there's this, for me, the most heartwarming of any of the budding romances uh, 
between uh, Mr. Carson, who is the head butler, and Miss Hughes. And they are their servants in the basement. They're sort of the downstairs world of Downton Abbey. And Carson is a very proper and formal and res- very respectable man. And Miss Hughes, in, in a similar way, and they they are um, and they're very good people, right? But they, they eventually sort of find that they are, you know, affectionately drawn to one another, and they eventually get engaged. But the marriage almost falls apart when Miss Hughes, and they're both older, right? They're probably in their 60s or something, and they're getting married very late in life. They've never been married. They've never had any relationships, love relationships. And Miss Hughes, it occurs to her all of a sudden that to be married means that she will be naked <laughs> before Carson, and have to perform her wifely duties. And she's actually terrified. And she starts spinning out, like, and she's sort of retreating from him a little bit. And she's so afraid to even broach the subject that she talks to her best friend, Miss Patmore, the, the, uh, the, you know, the cook, to go to Mr. Carson and raise the issue. Does he expect a wifely relationship? Can they just be like sister and brother? And, and it takes a long time for them to actually get to the point because they're all so embarrassed to talk about sex. But eventually it comes out, and Carson is, he says to Miss Patmore, and then eventually says to Miss Hughes, I find her beautiful, and I want all of her. And I will settle for nothing less than a full relationship. And it's this beautiful moment, and they both get married, right? And it's just this beautiful moment that sort of illustrates, I think, the heart of this text which is, there is something liberating about intimacy where one can be naked and unashamed, right? To be naked and unashamed. At the heart, that is the essence of true intimacy. That is arguably the deepest thing that we long for as human beings, is to be naked and unashamed. Walker Percy, in his book, Love in the Ruins, puts it this way. He says that we... We love those who most know, who know the worst of us and yet don't turn their faces away. We love those most who know the worst of us but don't turn their faces away. And, and this is the reality of marriage that, that you, you enter in and you stand exposed. And your spouse sees everything there and they don't turn away. That's the promise, right? That's and us wanting to go back to the garden. But the reality is, and those of you who have been married for longer than probably a couple weeks know, that the reality of being naked and unashamed is actually hard to maintain even in a marriage, even in the best of marriages. And I would say that, you know, marriage through the years is a series of sort of hiding and covering and then coming out and then, you know, it sort of goes through life. It's actually very hard, even in the very best of relationships, of marriages, and the best of friendships, to actually have that kind of intimacy, that original nakedness that we so long for. And I want to reflect on that. What is the meaning of original nakedness? What does that mean? And, And as I was thinking about it, it's sort of like, there's not very much here. It's sort of like, I'm amazed at how much we know about dinosaurs. Like, 
Like, we have, like, this full, like, fully elaborated imaginative world of what dinosaurs look like, but all we have are bone fragments, right? You have this bone fragment, and, and scientists have reconstructed, uh, you know, this very, very rich, you know, reality of the dinosaur. And I kind of feel like that's what we're doing this morning, is, like, we just have a bone fragment of original innocence, and we're trying to reconstruct, well, what, what would have original nakedness look like? Because we don't know a world without shame, and all we have is this sort of bone fragment. And yet, for Scripture, this theme of nakedness and garments and clothing from start to finish, it runs throughout the entire Bible. Nakedness, clothing, garments, it's everywhere. And so we have to actually understand nakedness and what it means in Genesis 2. And I think that this theme of nakedness and clothing gets at three questions in particular that are all interconnected. And they're this, who am I? What gives me dignity? And how do I give love and receive love? And these are all, these are all the interconnected questions of nakedness and, and being clothed. And, and it is very much has to do with the body. And, and one of the things I've been trying to get us to think about through this series, and will continue, is learning how to think with your bodies. Because when you think about your true self, and I said this about four or five weeks ago on the body, your, your body is your true self. Your body is your real self. And your body is built for relationship. Your real self is not some ethereal soul that hovers up here, um, or it's not something in your mind that you feel or will, like my true self. My body might say this, but my true self says this. That's how our culture approaches it. But your body is your true self. And what we're wrestling with here is what, what would is what would it have been like to have an Edenic body, right? A body that hadn't fallen, this, this, this body that was whole. So I want to answer that question. I want us to reflect on that this morning. And there's two things about the meaning of original nakedness. And both of them are, in a sense, the ground floor, the presupposition of all intimacy. The possibility of all intimacy assumes these two things. One is that we have a holy body, and two, that we have a vulnerable body. We have a holy body and a vulnerable body. So what is the nature of this nakedness that we, we encounter in this text? What, what it, I mean, what is the writer actually saying here? And it's actually kind of hard. I mean, you think about it, that verse, it says in verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed. Now, that's actually not a positive statement about the meaning of nakedness. It's simply saying it was a nakedness that didn't know shame. And so as the writer is sort of, in a way, reflecting on this, he's reflecting on it from the reality of shame already. And I think there's a way that when we come at this, you can't simply think about nakedness and without shame and as an absence. As in a simply, well, they were just without clothes and they didn't realize it, and they were just like children running around, right? They just didn't, they weren't conscious enough. They weren't mature yet to know that they should have a sense of separation in, in this. And it's interesting when you read, there's actually, I think, a fullness, not an absence. So nakedness before the fall, nakedness without shame is actually not the absence or the lack of something, but it's actually the presence of something. It's the fullness of something. And this is, um, this is really borne out when you look at the way that the church tradition, going all the way back to um, Jewish rabbinic um, world where they're reflecting on this text, even before you know, um, Christianity comes onto the scene. But 
it goes through the whole tradition that actually Adam and Eve were not naked. This is what the tradition says. There's a sense in which they were naked without, but not naked within. And the verse that everybody goes to, and I think it's an important verse, is Psalm 104. And it says this, O Lord my God, this is a great nature psalm, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And the church fathers and the rabbis would say that actually Adam and Eve, although they were naked physically, they were not naked morally. Right? They, they were clothed like God with light and glory. They were clothed with majesty, just as image bearers, right? If God himself is described as being clothed with light and majesty and glory, to be an image bearer before the fall meant that you yourself, your, own bo- your very body was in a sense transparent to this God, right? You, 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 you had a holiness to your body. A couple um, quotes from the tradition. Um, Ephraim the Syrian, an church, early church father, puts it this way. He says, of Adam and Eve, they were not ashamed because of the glory which they were clothed. It was when this glory was stripped from them after they had transgressed that they became ashamed. Or Echolampadius, which is, love that name, right? Johannes Echolampadius. He's a reformer. Um, this is a quote from the Reflections. Echolampadius says, why does he, the, the writer, turn and say Adam was nude except that the nakedness encloses an extraordinary glory? In them was nothing deformed nor shameful. They were upright, just, clothed with innocence. So the body, the Edenic body that Adam and Eve, that the man and woman possessed that was the basis of their nakedness was actually a body that was full of glory. Holy body. And that word holy in Scripture is closely related with the theme of glory. We think of holiness and we think of separation and purity and a sort of um, kind of priestly, but holiness has the sense of beauty, God's moral beauty. When, 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 when we, we think about, when, when in Isaiah 6, it's the cherubim are saying, holy, 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 it's beauty, beauty, beauty. It's the awesome beauty and glory of God that is staggering, that on the one hand is fearful, creates fear, but also an awe and majesty. And this was what the human body was possessed of internally. And then when shame, or when we sin, what happens is shame enters, right? And shame enters as the absence, as the glory, as the holiness leaves. Now I have a whole sermon where I'm going to talk about shame later in, during Lent, but we have to talk about shame because really that's the only category that we can even contrast to get at this positive category. With sin, shame enters the world. And this idea of shame. If guilt says, I did something wrong, right? I did something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. (laughs) Shame is one of those things, I mean, again, to have a body, there's no such thing as shame if you don't have a body. (laughs) But if you have a body... Sin clings to your body and expresses itself in shame. And what is shame? Shame is division. Shame is a sort of self-consciousness of myself that pushes me away from others, that divides me against others in the world. It's that fear that Miss Hughes felt, or is tempted to feel, that if he sees me naked, he will see my ugliness, and he will reject me, and he will push me away. 
That's the dynamics of shame in our lives. And that's precisely what happens when the man and the woman, they eat, and then all of a sudden there's this sense of shame, of division, of their nakedness that causes them to hide. Friends, shame, and and this is why these categories are so important to me, shame is a destroyer of intimacy. Nothing will destroy intimacy in your marriage or in your friendships or in community like shame. Shame is a destroyer of community as well. Shame is what keeps people out of community. Shame makes us hide. But holiness, right? Holiness is the opposite of that. Holiness is the basis of communion with one another. And it's the holiness of the body that allows us actually to enter in in an unashamed way into relationship with others. Now, there's a lot to say, one could say about this. But here's what I want you to sort of reflect on. Moral beauty, moral beauty in your life is the basis of true communion and intimacy. And so what I'm saying here is that if you are an immoral person, <laughs> and, I, and I mean that in, in you, if you are, and in, in, we're all immoral, but to lack character is to be disabled when it comes to intimacy. It's to not be able to enter into the kind of deep, soul-satisfying relationships that your and mine heart desire. And a very simple illustration from, of this from the New Testament. Think of that great love passage from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage about moral beauty. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It does not seek its own, right? Friends, if you, if you want intimacy, desire moral virtue. I mean, we spent three months talking about the virtues of Christ. And these are the basis of true communion and intimacy. Holy people make the best lovers. Holy people make the best lovers. The greatest friends you will have in your life will be saints. (laughs) Because saints make the best kinds of friends. It's people who are going to be patient with you. People are going to be gentle with you. They make the best parents. And this is why, and I say this often, the greatest gift you have to give to one another as spouses, as parents, as friends, is your love for God is your own holiness. And I often we think, oh, if I could just love my wife more. And you focus all of your attention. But if you love God more, you'll be able to love your wife more. And the same with your children. And the same with your friends. And why? Because your life becomes transparent to God. His glory, His holiness, His moral beauty becomes that sort of inner clothing of your life such that you can go to the other. You can See, one of the things about shame and there's various low-grades form and high-grade form. Shame is a kind of crushing self-consciousness that you cannot not think about yourself. You're obsessed with yourself. You can't stop thinking about yourself and what other people think of you. And moral beauty and holiness sets you free from yourself such that you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about the other you're saying, "How can I give myself? How can I know?" Okay, so the body of the man and the women are clothed within with this moral beauty 
but, they're not na- but, but they are naked physically. And I think this is an important point, which is this idea of our bodies being vulnerable. So the body is clothed within with holiness, but it is vulnerable without. Nakedness of the man and the woman meant that their bodies were vulnerable to one another, and they're vulnerable to the world. And there's a number of things that you might think about and define with vulnerability, but let me just give you three, three categories or ways to think about vulnerability. To be vulnerable, first and foremost, is to be visible. <laughs> it's to live out in the open. It's to be accessible, right? Because what do the man and the woman do? They hide. And God comes to them, and he says to the man, where are you? Where are you? And what is God saying? He, it's not just asking for his geographic location. He's asking something deeper. It's, where are you? Where is your soul? Where is your spirit, right? And, and so many times in life, are, you have this sense that people and, and we become inaccessible to others. We might be physically present, but we're not accessible emotionally. We have all these different walls and coverings and things that sort of keep us inaccessible and safe. We're not present. We're not touchable. But to be vulnerable is to live out in the open. It's to be visible. But to be vulnerable also is to be trusting. And this is very hard. This is why we don't want to be vulnerable. To be a vulnerable person means you have to entrust yourself to another, and you don't know how they will respond. This is the essence in the garden. God puts this tree, and he says, just trust me. I give you everything. Trust me. And the failure of Adam and Eve to trust God was really driven by a sense that we all possess as sinners to have mastery and control over our our relational environments. To always know what the outcome is going to be. But the last part, so you have accessibility and trust, but to be a vulnerable person is to be a person that lives wholeheartedly. <laughs> In a sense, you, you enter into the world and relationships, and, and you know, we, again, a way we become safe is we just sort of give a part of ourselves. We don't give our whole selves. We don't live wholeheartedly in the world. We hold back, we, we calculate, and we compartmentalize. Um, a, <clears throat> so here's, here's the thing you have to get. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. There's no intimacy without vulnerability. There's no connection without vulnerability. There's a very famous TED Talk given by a woman named Breen Brown called The Power of Vulnerability. 27 million like, hits, I think, at this point. I recommend you listen to it. But one of the things she talks about there is that vulnerability is a power. It's the power for connection. It's the, po- it's, it's the, the ability to have a sense of belonging and love She puts it this way. She says, connection flows from authenticity when you're able to be yourself before others. And this vulnerability is the birthplace of love, creativity, and joy. And what's what's interesting, everything she says, almost everything she says in there, and she, she came out of this as a psychologist doing all this research and data, and she finally comes to a kind of scientific conclusion that vulnerability is essential for human flourishing. And this is what the scriptures have said from the very beginning. <laughs> vulnerability. Nakedness. And yet, there's this thing that pulls us away from that. 
which is shame. And she actually talks a lot about shame. She says, what is shame? Shame is very simply. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Shame is the fear of disconnection. And of course, when the man and the woman, after they eat of the tree, they recognize they're naked. And the first thing they do is they disconnect, in a sense. They withdraw. They cover themselves. They hide. Now, I think this presents us with a dilemma. I think we all experience vulnerability in life as a dilemma. Because I think intuitively we know that I cannot get real intimacy and love unless I'm vulnerable. And yet, to become vulnerable is to become exposed. And so we are these sort of relational magicians that are trying all these ways to get intimacy, to get the feeling or the experience of love without actually having to be truly vulnerable. And it's our refusal to be vulnerable that deep down, when we don't want to be vulnerable with others, whether you realize it, whether it's above board in your head or not, you're dealing with shame. Deep down, you're addressing shame. The refusal to be vulnerable in life, deep down, is about shame. (laughs) And I think there's three things you see from our text of how we try to escape vulnerability. We cover up, we hide, and we redefine. Let me just talk about these The first strategy to deal with shame is that we try to cover up. That's what the man and the woman do. They realize they're naked and they they create garments, fig leaves, something beautiful actually. They try to cover themselves to become attractive, right? You lose your inner glory and all of a sudden you're exposed and you realize there's this massive insecurity that surrounds your life and your body. And so we try to cover ourselves and we do this in life, right? We, we try to cover our lives with accomplishment, with wealth or money, with smarts or physical beauty. There's all these things we do to cover ourselves, right? To kind of, so that we can stand before the world, not as naked, but as somebody who has glory. And so, you know, some of the most accomplished people, and maybe you've had this experience Some of the most accomplished people in life that I've met, very wealthy or incredibly smart in sort of academia, they've made it, are some of the most isolated, some of the loneliest, some of the people that are most inaccessible to the world. See, oftentimes we we cover ourselves with this glories, these things that we think will allow us to stand in the world and we desire to be loved, but what we don't realize is those coverings actually alienate further divide us further from the thing we most desire. And so the question I want to pose to you is this, friends. What are you hiding behind? What what might be that covering, that fig leaf, that beautiful thing, that thing that has glory, that you hide yourself behind? But Adam and Eve, they don't just cover up, they hide. And I think sometimes we tend to run these together, but there's actually two separate things they do. First, they cover themselves. But second, when they hear the Lord God walking in the garden, what do they do? They, they run for the bushes. They run for the trees. They hide. They withdraw. And this is another way that we escape vulnerability. We simply withdraw. We withdraw from close relationships. We avoid community. We become intensely private, even secretive about our life. And in our culture in particular, There is great sacredness attached to our own privacy. People get very, very upset 
when they feel like their privacy has been betrayed or encroached upon. It's intense. There's a sacredness of the self, right? Don't enter my garden, my own solitary garden, and disrupt that. But friends, here's the reality, is that you you cannot belong. You will never have a sense of belonging. You will never have the kind of intimacy your heart so longs for and desires if you're always hiding, if you're always keeping community at harm's length. But three, the third point, and this is where I want to just spend a few more moments, because I think that this is the strategy our culture uses most. The way that we escape vulnerability is we redefine it. It's interesting that chapter 3 starts with this verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals. Because this is a strategy of the serpent. And the strategy of the serpent is to say this, is to redefine reality is to say, did God really say that you couldn't eat of this tree? And the woman says, we'll surely die. You will not surely die. And see, that's where we're at now in our culture, by and large, when it comes to the issue of shame. What I mean by this is this, is that now we want to redefine shame out of our culture. Ours is a culture that actually wants to be naked. You know, in a way, you, you watch that show Downton Abbey and you, you think of all the formalities and the dress and, and you think, wow, that's such an unemotional and distant world, right? That, and, and what you see is in the, in the progress of that whole show over the course of 10 years in 1920 or 10s is a move towards more and more informality, more and more sort of breezy relationships. And in our culture, we desperately want to be naked, And that's what we mean by authenticity. That's why authenticity is such a core virtue, to be authentic, to be yourself. You just live out there, right? But friends, there's a difference between being naked and unashamed and being shamelessly naked, because that's where our culture is. We said, okay, we don't need to hide ourselves. You just take me as there is. And our culture wants us to, to be able to look at ourselves, to say, you, this is who I am. I'm broken. I'm, I'm ugly. But don't you dare call this brokenness or ugliness ugly. (laughs) You actually have to see my ugliness and say that it's beautiful. Our culture seeks to eradicate shame by destroying the moral foundations upon which generate it, right? But the reality is this, is that it doesn't work as a strategy. (laughs) It actually intensifies shame. It intensifies shame. This is a counterfeit nakedness, friends. There's a counterfeit nakedness. Um, one of the points at which I disagree with Breen Brown's talk, and I think it's an important difference, is she says one of the common things that marks those people with vulnerability, that are able to be vulnerable and have connection in their lives, is um, a deep sense of that they are worthy of love and belonging. That they are worthy of love and belonging. And, and I think this is true at a, at a certain level, that that if you have this deficit in your life that you are worthy or lovable or you belong, this will certainly keep you from entering and keep you fearful from relationships. But the problem is this, is that you can't simply say, as our culture does, you are beautiful. Just keep, that's our mantra. You're beautiful. No matter what you do, no matter how you look, no matter how screwed up you are, you are beautiful. And there's a sense in which it's true, as image bearers of God, you are beautiful, but it's only because of what God gives to you. But friends, 
What happens when you know you are not worthy of love and belonging? When you know you're not beautiful? When you really do know that you are ugly? Morally? What do you do? Even if the whole world tells you you're beautiful and and worthy, and your soul keeps shouting, no, you're not worthy, how do you overcome that? So that's the problem. Our, our culture tells us that you can root your identity in yourself. <laughs> that's what we're trying to do in our culture. Is what, this is the redefinition that I'm talking about. That you redefine, that, that your worth is actually in yourself. That you can define it for yourself. But the reality is, is that no, you cannot. And you can tell yourself all you want, that you're beautiful and you're lovely, But the reality is, is that if there's not something out there that makes you beautiful, that is given to you, you will always wrestle with shame and guilt that alienates and pushes you away from community. One of the verses that is part of chapter 3 that uh, didn't make into our reading, but I think it's important, is this. Before Before God sends the man and the woman out of the garden, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothe them. God clothes them. The fig leaves are not enough. The fig leaves that you make for yourself are not enough. God has to clothe you. He has to clothe you. And this is the first death, right? It says skins, right? There is there's no death in the world, but here we have death in order that God might clothe us. And with death comes also blood. We sang this morning, let your blood plead for me. And at the essence of that song is this image that runs throughout Scripture that it is the blood that cleanses from shame. It is blood that wipes away the taint and stain of sin, the shame that clings to our body. And the first death in the world was a sacrifice that God makes of an animal to cover the man and the woman. But someday God has another sacrifice of his own son whose blood is shed. And it is with his garments that we are clothed, friends. His body as holy, his body as vulnerable. As when Paul talks about clothing yourself with the new self in Colossians that is being renewed in the image of its creator. Being clothed with these virtues is to be clothed with the very person of Christ himself. That's what we do in baptism, is the going down naked and coming up clothed with glory, the glory of somebody else, somebody else's moral beauty. And when you're clothed with Christ, you are freed friends. You are freed. And this is the beauty of the Christian, that when you become a Christian, you actually, Christ becomes your identity. You are set free. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because you now possess, in the person of Jesus Christ, a glory (laughs) that you don't fully possess, perhaps, in your person, but you possess this glory and this moral beauty that allows you to enter in the world without fear and without shame. Adam hid his nakedness among the trees. But the second Adam had his nakedness exposed upon a tree. The first Adam tried to deal with his shame by covering himself up. But the second Adam dealt with our shame 
by becoming uncovered. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the one who was stripped naked on the cross, he had no loincloth on the cross. He takes shame and he converts it into glory. A body that is shamed and vulnerable becomes a body that is holy and gives itself to the world in self-giving love. That's what it means to be naked and unashamed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to grab with our full hearts, wholeheartedly, this deep truth that in Jesus Christ we are clothed with the beauty of your very Son, that you are restoring us beyond even what Adam and Eve had in the garden to something even greater and more glorious. And so may we grow into that identity. And as we grow into that, may that set us free, Lord, and liberating love to love those around us. Whatever suffering or rejection or risk might come, knowing ultimately that our lives are secure in you and we will not be turned away. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.